The following audio has been brought to you by Word of Grace Community Church. For more information about Word of Grace, visit wogcc.com. Today, we're swapping gears. We're going to start a brand new series, and I love doing these. Absolutely love doing these, where we go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And I looked back on our verse by verse teachings that we have done, and we really started doing this in uh, the fall of 2014. I scrolled back and I looked in the first one we did. Does anyone remember the very first one? It was a 17-week one. (laughs) Some of you are like, yeah, we remember Romans. (laughs) Because you came to church and for 17 weeks you heard a verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Romans. And let me tell you, that was one of the most exhaustive studies that I've ever done of any scripture because, man, there's just so much meat in there. And I studied my heart out, and I believe that that was just a fantastic series. And I was so proud of our church for just going through that series and people growing and being challenged and people seeing new things in scripture. But since then, we've done Romans, we've done Philippians, we've done Ephesians, we've done James, Titus, Philemon, and Galatians. So this is going to be our eighth book of the Bible that we have gone through since 2014, and I think that's awesome. So I just think it's absolutely incredible for us to understand the importance of contextualizing Scripture, because there's a lot of good people, I think, in this world that have good intentions. Some of them maybe not, but I think there are a lot of good people that do have good intentions, but they're just mishandling Scripture, and they're using Scripture to back up their ideas or their good thought. And so they'll just sprinkle Scripture in between. But in doing that, the danger is is that they take it out of context. And the danger there is that if they take one thing out of context, well, then you could be living out of a poor belief system because it's not properly being contextualized. So we can't just create these great thoughts or these great ideas and then go, oh, let me find out where the Bible supports my idea. Instead, we should go to the Scripture first in proper context and allow Scripture to shape our heart, our ideas, the way we worship God, the way we view God, the way we view ourselves, and our growth journey with Him. Amen, somebody? And I think going through verse-by-verse teachings, this is kind of something that we do, you know, as we go through these teachings that we're almost taught and we get trained in as we do this because it helps us to see things properly in proper light. Now, there's a lot of popular Christian books and movies that are coming out left and right. And let me tell you here, don't get your doctrine from them, okay? Like I said, there's good-intentioned people that are wanting to probably put out a good heartfelt story, but don't get your doctrine from those people, Don't say, I believe this because I saw it in a movie or read it in some book. You see, you don't want to be led into false doctrine because good intentions don't excuse improper study and preparation. Oh, don't shout me down when I'm preaching. I said good intentions don't excuse improper study and preparation. Here's the thing. You need to check everything against the Word, everything, and I mean me included. Check me, check any book, anything that you are allowing to influence your life or influence your belief. Listen, I don't care who says it, how many books they've sold or how big of a crowd that they draw. Popularity does not equal correct context. Sometimes it does. Sometimes very popular speakers have wonderful context, but we may not understand everything here. We're not saying we've got it all figured out. We've got all the knowledge here, so come here because we're the smartest, because we're not. But we are trying diligently as we teach the Word of God to handle it properly and make sure that as you as Christians are growing individually and the influences and the things that you allow into your life and into your homes and into your minds and into your hearts, that those things are 
uh, correct and that they're in context and that sometimes if something veers off to the left or to the right and it's not just staying right down there in the middle of the truth of God's word, if there's a gray area, that you are growing in maturity and able to eat the fish and spit out the bones. You understand what I'm saying? Because we need to grow as Christians to be able to rightly divide the word of truth, even if it disagrees with our personal bent, even if it disagrees with our personal way of thinking or our tradition. Amen? Because when you come here and when you're faced week after week with Scripture in context, it is going to challenge you. It will probably challenge some ideas that you have believed. It will probably challenge some thoughts that you have had. And guess what? That's a good thing. Because we're not just a yes club, right? We need to go, oh man, that challenges me. I need to check that out. And I need to look at that in light of Scripture. And I need to be equipped to be able to know how to do that. So that's part of our intent going through these books as we've done since 2014, as well as going through the book of Colossians. And today we're going to begin our journey through the book of Colossians. And so I want you to go ahead and go to Colossians chapter 1. We'll go ahead and go there. Uh, I want you to get your Bible out. I want you to get out a good uh, piece of paper to take notes with or some type of device that you're using to take notes with. I think that that's very important for us to be students of the Word of God. If you did not bring a Bible this morning, don't feel bad. We have Bibles provided for you in the back. Uh, you can go ahead and grab one of those if you want to. Um, if you don't have a Bible, consider that our gift to you. If you just forgot yours at home, please put it back on your way out or there will be ninjas come and attack you. No, that's not true. That's not true, but just remember to put it back, please, so someone else can use it. And just for uh, uh, your information, we are going through this in the English Standard Version, so the ESV translation. So I think that when you are talking about anything to do with doctrine, that you need to make sure that you're always looking at what's called a word-for-word -word translation. There's really two different types of Bibles when you're saying, what translation do I use? Because people ask me this question all the time. I want to get a Bible for my kid, or I want to get a Bible for a friend, or my husband, or my wife, or whatever. What translation? They're just getting started. What's the best translation? Well, here's the deal. If you're looking to discover truth in doctrine, you want to go for a word-for-word -word translation, which means that the actual Greek and Hebrew text was translated in a word-for-word -word basis, okay? The English standard, which I preach out of every week here at Word of Grace, is a word-for-word -word translation where they actually studied the word, translated the actual word. Now, there are others that are called paraphrases where they just are more of a thought-for-thought translation translation, where they take the idea of what's being said, and they will translate the text based on what they think that it's saying based on the thought that's happening. So it's a thought for thought translation. When it's concerning doctrine, all right, listen to me. When it's concerning doctrine, you always want to make sure that you look at a word-for-word -word translation, because a thought-for-thought -thought translation may have a skewed thought or a skewed idea. I'm not demonizing thought-for-thought -thought paraphrases or interpretations of Scripture because I think that they're good to help bring clarity. However, when it's concerning doctrine, always go with a word-for-word. -word. If you don't know what kind of Bible you have, whether it's thought-for-thought -thought or word-for-word, -word, I got a tool for you to be able to use. If you'd put that up on the screen, here's a website that I found, Mardell.com. Mardell is a Christian bookstore, and they actually have a part on their website where you can compare different Bible translations to see if you have a word-for-word -word or a thought-for-thought. -thought. So just go to Mardell.com slash Bible Translation Guide. All one word, Bible Translation Guide at Mardell. Com. I want you to write that down to make sure that you can go and see that. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with the thought for thought, but my 
only concern with us as a church as we grow would be that if we are going to read thought for thought because it's easier to understand oftentimes, you compare it with a word for word. Does that make sense? All right. This doesn't really have a whole lot to do with Colossians, but I want to equip you with stuff to help you to grow as you're growing in your walk with God, because that's my job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and I want to make sure I'm doing a good job of equipping you. All right, so Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul, all right? He wrote this while he was in a Roman prison because he was sharing the gospel, and so people didn't like him sharing the gospel, so they threw him into a prison there in Rome. Now, the gospel is the good news about Jesus, and Paul was writing this letter to the church in Colossae because there were two strong groups that were trying to lure gospel-believing, grace-centered Christians into dangerous variations of the truth. Now, oftentimes when people get lured away from the truth, it's not this huge thing that says, hey, I'm teaching hypocrisy over here, come follow me. It's never this huge blinking sign where someone's just screaming out something that's so ridiculous that everybody goes, okay, I'll, I'll go over here. Because we're smart enough that we can see something that's just blatantly blasphemous or blatantly not true, and a lot of people can steer clear of that. But these types of teachers that were infiltrating the church in Colossae were not these people that were going around screaming all of these things to try to get you to obviously see that they were false teachers. These people were smart. These people were slick. These people had a portion of the truth, and then they had a lie, which if you combine a lie with the truth, it then becomes a lie. It doesn't mean that I just want to follow this one portion. No, they're trying to distort and manipulate truth. And so they took some parts of the gospel, and they took some parts of the Old Testament, and they took some parts of traditions and values of the culture and society, and they mixed it with some crazy stuff that when you would get into their teaching, that you would go, huh, well, I never thought about it that way, or I don't know, maybe that is right. That's not what Paul taught, or that's not what our pastor taught, or that's not what I saw in Scripture, but man, maybe that is right. And that's what was going on. So it's sly, it's slick, it's dangerous, it's covert. And that's what's happening. And Paul catches wind of this. And he can't do anything about it because he can't get out of prison and go and teach the truth to these guys. So instead, he writes this letter that we now know as the book of Colossians. Now, there were two primary things that were really trying to infiltrate the church that were very sly and very slick. One of, it, uh, one of the teachings was called Gnosticism. I know a lot of you may have heard about Gnostics and Gnosticism, especially uh, with uh, that, that book that came out, The Da Vinci Code, you know, quite a few years back. That was real big on Gnosticism and all that, and you start hearing about that more and more. And, and Gnosticism is really this idea and this belief of secret knowledge, of secret angelic languages and, and levels that as you get into the club and you get to learn the true secrets, the real truth that everyone else is keeping away from you, that no one else really knows, that you ascend into deeper and higher levels of this knowledge and you become more spiritual and you become more angelic-like and more God-like. And that's what this Gnosticism would teach. And you would go, man, that sounds crazy. Who would believe that? Well, when they would couple it with certain truths or they would couple it with certain popular teachings and they would try to weave their way into the church, people would go, oh, I don't know. That, 
That, that, that sounds kind of interesting. Tell me more about that. The other group was called Judaizers. Now, Paul's dealt with this group many times. This was probably one of Paul's biggest uh, groups that would, uh, he would constantly have to go back to different churches and try to correct when Judaizers would come in to town and try to convert the people who were Christians over into their Judaizer type of belief. And their belief was, Jesus is good. We like Jesus. We think Jesus was the Son of God. We believe that Jesus is a pathway to heaven. But in order for you to truly be a Christian and for you to be welcome into God's family, for you to truly have uh, God uh, welcome you into his heaven when you die, for you to truly be connected to God, not only do you need Jesus, but you also need all of the Jewish laws. You need to follow all of the Jewish traditions. You need to basically go through the process of initiation before you're a real Christian. So just faith alone in Jesus Christ is not good enough. It's faith in Jesus Christ plus circumcision. It's plus all of keeping all of the days, the months, and the years of the Jewish calendar, all the festivals. Plus, it's doing all the things that the Torah tells you to do. It was all of these very demanding and very taxing things of the law included with a belief in Jesus. So it's like you have to become a Jew and then also you have to accept Christ. So it sounds good and it sounds true, but yet it was very, very false doctrine that was infiltrating the church because it took away from the finished work of Christ truly being the only way to the Father. It, it was like Jesus plus this other stuff. And so listen, folks, this uh, just wasn't good enough uh, uh, when Paul was hearing this, he couldn't stand it any longer, so he had to write this letter because he knows, just like you and I know, that anything added to the gospel of grace is not gospel. Amen, somebody. Anything that's added to the gospel of grace is not gospel. Listen, if anyone teaches that anything more than faith in what Jesus did on the cross leads to salvation, then they don't really know Jesus. If it's Jesus plus this, if it's Jesus plus that, if they don't believe that Jesus paid it all, that somehow you need to get involved in the process of your salvation by you either paying Jesus back or you going off of this karma-based system where you try to outdo the wrong that you've done and you try to win God's love and you try to win God's favor, folks, then you don't truly understand gospel and you don't truly understand grace. Grace is a free gift. You could do nothing about it other than trust and believe and repent. That's all you can do. All you can do is go, I trust you, I have faith in you, and it's caused me to see my sinfulness, and I repent, and I say, I want you in my life. And I realize there is nothing I can do. It puts me in a helpless state where I say, I couldn't save myself, I can't save myself, I can't redeem myself. It was only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that I have found forgiveness and salvation and redemption. That's the message of the gospel. But if you add anything else to it, it then is not the gospel. It's not Jesus plus communion. It's not Jesus plus baptism. It's not Jesus plus speaking in tongues. It's not Jesus plus good works. It's not Jesus plus giving in the tithes and offerings. It's not Jesus plus church membership. And then you become a Christian. All of those things I just mentioned, man, those are all good things and all scriptural things, but those things should come as a result of knowing Jesus, not a pathway to Jesus. You understand what I'm saying this morning? 
We want to pursue growing in godliness. We want to pursue seeing God work effectively in our heart. And we want to change and grow into Christ's likeness. That's the process of sanctification that each one of us are on after we become a Christian. But it doesn't negate the fact that I am a Christian just because I don't have every single one of those things in my life as if it were some sort of religious checklist. I don't see that in Scripture. I see that it's by faith alone, that it's by faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in what He did and by receiving His gift of grace. Don't you know that it was by grace that you are saved by faith and that it's not anything of yourself, not any work you've done so you could boast about it. It's all because of Jesus. That's why all the glory goes to Him. Amen, somebody? That's why it's not this comparison thing where you begin to compare yourself to other people and you're a better Christian than this person because you've done this and you've done this and look at how far I am down the, the list of good deeds. No, good deeds come as a result of knowing Jesus. Should we have good deeds? Yes. Should we want to be a part of all those things I just mentioned and more? Absolutely. Because the Bible is full of things that God wants us to grow in. But those things are fruit in our lives that come as a result of knowing Jesus, not a pathway to Jesus in order to be accepted by Him, in order to be loved by Him. He loves you just as you are. That is the gospel that Jesus paid it all, that Jesus is sufficient. And we want to make sure that we understand that very clear. So Paul is very concerned, as he well should be. Now, he hasn't been to this church. He's never been to the church in Colossae, but he knows the pastor. His name, name is Epaphras. That's a pretty cool name. If you're expecting a child, consider Epaphras. <laughs> so he writes this letter to the church in Colossae to help him steer clear of these dangerous temptations to follow another so-called gospel. So with all of that in mind, why don't we read Colossians 1 and verse 1. He says this in his opening. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy is with him. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Hold up. Stop right there. My mind is already blown. I don't know about you. But here's Paul and Timothy in prison, and they have a lot of time on their hands. And instead of them sitting around feeling sorry for themselves, instead of them sitting around going, woe is me, I'm in prison again for trying to do something good, what are they doing? They're thanking God for the Christians at Colossae. And they're doing what? They're both praying for them. Don't you think about people that are in bad situations and it makes you like, Man, I, I, I need to pray for those people because they're in such a miserable, terrible situation. We think about even some missionaries that are in third world countries and we remember them in our prayers because we think about the conditions that they're dealing with and the things that they're having to go through and the persecution that they're facing. And we remember, man, we need to pray for them. But yet the very person who has been in prison and persecuted is praying for the church. That blows my mind. And it shows me something, that even though that they were in prison, that they allowed that time to be a time of focused prayer because they understood something about the impact of the gospel. And they're trying to get this church in Colossae to see the fruit of someone who is truly being impacted by the gospel because evidence of a heart that's influenced by the gospel is concern for other people. Man, you see this all throughout Paul's ministry. It didn't matter how bad it got. He was still thinking about other people. How many times do things get bad in our lives and we immediately turn inward? 
We immediately turn this thing towards ourselves and we begin to wait for someone to feel sorry for us or someone to take uh, some sort of sympathy on us or someone to take pity on us because here we are in this terrible situation. Don't they know I'm in prison? Don't they know that they've been feeding me moldy bread? Don't they know I had to beg for a cup of water the other day? Don't they know my bed is not comfortable? Don't they know there's rats in here? <laughs> it's terrible. It's awful. No, he didn't say anything like that. He didn't even talk about his own condition, did he? He didn't say, hey, here we are, prisoners. We're getting beat every day. It's pretty rough. It's hot in here. They won't turn on the AC. They canceled my magazine subscriptions. No cable television in this prison. No, they said, we thank God for you, and we're reminded daily to be praying for you. We're interceding for you. We're thinking about you. We're praying for you. So they're concerned about other people because evidence of a heart influenced by the gospel is a concern for other people. Let's keep on reading. Verse 3, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit. It's increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and you understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, one of the things here that he talks about is that grace should cause us to grow. We see that he said that the grace uh, that is spoken of, this message of the gospel, that it is causing fruit to be born in your life, that it is increasing, that there's change happening at the heart level, that there are things that are noticeable, that there's a difference. Listen. One of the evidences of a heart that's influenced by the gospel is not only a concern for others, but it's also a changed heart that begins to live and act differently than before it encountered the message of the gospel. Amen, somebody? You see, if we truly receive the gospel, there is no way that we can, after having experienced the message of truth, seeing our sinful nature, repenting and turning towards God, there is no way that we can be the same if we've truly encountered the gospel. He said there's evidence that the gospel is at work. There's evidence of it because you're bearing fruit. That's the evidence of the gospel at work. Now listen, that kind of sounds a little bit like works just a little bit because now you're a Christian, you're doing all these things. No, remember, the evidence is that I have been impacted by the gospel and then the fruit comes. I've already been accepted. It doesn't change my standing, but it does change me and it helps me to grow. It helps me to continue to grow in the message of grace and helps me to uh, better serve Jesus and understand this whole living, presenting my body as a living sacrifice and a living for him. Let's keep on reading verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. We've been asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, that's a very key phrase here in this first part of Colossians. We'll go back to that. Verse 10. So, uh, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's that knowledge word again. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, 
for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's stop right there for just a moment. So here we see that Paul and Timothy were praying prayers. And they just didn't pray just any old prayer. They prayed specific prayers for these people because of their concern, because the gospels impacted their life, and they're concerned about other people. But as you look at their prayers, they prayed what I like to call so that prayers. You want to see your prayer life increase? You want to see your prayer life become more powerful? Start praying so that prayers. So that. Or you'll see in Scripture where there's other times where the Apostle Paul or anyone will pray a that you may prayer. So a, a so that or a that you may prayer you need to slow down and think about what you're saying. So in other words, when we're tempted to just regurgitate religious rhetoric or we're tempted to just repeat something that we learned in Sunday school or something that we've heard, it will cause us to slow down and actually get very intimate in our prayers and thoughtful in our prayers if we will pray so that prayers and that you may prayers. So when we begin to pray instead of say, God bless them, God, just bless their little heart. Good gosh, bless them. Help them, Jesus. Help them, Jesus. Instead of just saying help them or bless them, what if you then added so that to your prayer? I pray that you would help Pastor Bob and Amy Abel over in Thailand. Pray you would be with them so that your work can be furthered in Thailand. And so that people can be reached with the message of the gospel. And so that their family can be healthy and strong and their marriage can be strong even in the middle of the challenges that they're facing over there. So that you're glorified, God. Are you hearing the difference in our prayers? When we just pray, God bless them, God help them. Our intentions may be good, but sometimes we can just get meaningless in some of our prayers and just repeat words. But if we'll slow down, and if you add so that, or that you may to your prayers, man, it really makes you think about what you're saying. It makes you think about the prayers that you pray. God, I pray that you would bless our church. Why? So that we can reach more people with the message of the gospel. So that the vision that you have for this local body can be everything, Lord, that you've called us to be so that people can be reached and helped and served with the truth and they can find freedom so that you can be glorified. Are you hearing the difference of the prayers? That's the type of prayers that Paul and Timothy were praying. They were praying so that prayers. Now, they may not use the exact verbiage depending on the, the translation you may be reading out of. But the idea is still the same, that there's intentionality in their prayer. So as we read the prayer that Paul just prayed over these people, it was very intentional. It was a so that prayer. He prayed that they would be filled with knowledge and wisdom. Now, this is very important because of the Gnostics that were there uh, talking about this higher level of knowledge, this secret knowledge that we talked about earlier. He was actually trying to show them the truth in this because of the Greek word that he used. There's a couple of different Greek words that are used for the word knowledge. There's the word gnosis, and then there's the word epignosis. Now, the word gnosis 
as the word that really means like a self-serving knowledge. But epignosis means the fullest and clearest knowledge. So here, Paul prays that the church at Colossae would have the uh, wisdom and the epignosis, the fullest and clearest knowledge of what? Of the will of God. God. He wants them to be strengthened. So you see here in verse 11, he wants them to have this knowledge, this clear knowledge of God's will so that they may be strengthened with all power and his glorious might, with endurance and patience and with joy because he knows the trials that they're facing and he knows the challenges that are coming their way and there's going to have to be some endurance. There's going to have to be some patience because the gospel stirs us to grow in understanding and maturity as Christians. The gospel stirs our very heart to grow in understanding and maturity. In other words, this isn't something where we should just depend on someone else to guide us, but yet we should be able to grow and mature to when things come our way that are not gospel, that we should be able to see it as such and identify it, and we can continue to move on patiently Instead of just hoping the situation change, we can say, no, I need to be patient and I need to continue to grow and mature in my walk with God because the gospel stirs up that kind of heart in us to grow and understand and maturity as Christians. So Paul prayed that the Colossians would be changed and empowered. Notice how he prayed. He prayed that the Colossians would be changed and empowered. Listen to this. He did not pray that the persecution that they were facing would stop. Nor do we see Paul pray one time that the false teachers would go away. He didn't say, God, I pray those false teachers go away so those Colossians don't have to deal with this mess. God, I pray that those false teachers just get out of here in the name of Jesus. He didn't pray that way. Why? Because he knew there would always be false teachers around. If it's not this crew, it's going to be another crew, right? If it's not whatever situation you're facing now, it's going to be another situation that's going to come up later because there's going to be stuff come up in your life. Jesus never said that everything's going to be hunky-dory and peachy, right? He didn't promise that we're going to be leaping through the fields of daisies with bunny rabbits and squirrels everywhere, right? He didn't promise we would be frolicking through the forest when we become Christians. No, he said the world is going to hate you and it's going to be my fault. He said they're actually going to persecute you. He said it's going to be because of me. So Instead of praying prayers to alleviate the circumstance, instead of praying prayers that the circumstance would change, and we don't see Paul praying any prayers where he's asking for a specific circumstance to change. God, help those false teachers to get on out of town. God, I pray that you would just break these shackles off my hands so I can go just whip those, those guys into shape. He didn't pray for anything like that. But yet Paul prayed very intentionally. And what did he pray? He prayed that they would have wisdom. He prayed that they would have understanding. He prayed that they would have endurance. And he prayed that they would have patience because there were always going to be false teachers around. There's always going to be somebody trying to drag you over here or over there. And you've got to learn how to grow up and deal with it instead of just making the situation go away. Kind of like when you're a parent. Sometimes when your kids are going through something rough, you've got to let them go through it. Oh, don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. You can't rescue your children out of every situation that's going to be challenging. If you do, they're never going to grow and never learn how to handle anything. A really cool, funny example of this was back when we had basketball cages over here. And uh, we had the ping pong cage, if you guys remember, that were here during that time. The ping pong cage and the basketball cage were pretty much back to back. But there was a little gap about this wide. I mean, maybe 8 to 10 inches in between. 
Well, one day, one of my friend's kids got stuck in between those two because he thought he would just go on a little adventure after church, and he got stuck in between, and he was crying. Daddy, help me! Well, first of all, his dad's too big to get back there. So really, buddy, you're going to have to figure this out. And he told him, he said, you got back there, and you're going to have to figure out how to get out. And he said, I need help, I need help. He said, you got back there, you're going to have to figure out how to get out of that situation. And sure enough, slowly but surely, this little four or five-year-old kid, he got out of that situation. So many times, we want God to bail us out when we get stuck. And God's saying, I'm trying to help you to grow in patience and endurance. And you need to figure this out. You need to grow. Instead of just praying that the circumstance change, instead of praying that your spouse will change or your boss will change or your job will change or your situation will change, here Paul didn't pray for any of that. He said, help these people to grow in knowledge and understanding so that when these false teachers come, they know the truth because they've grown up, because they know the situations to avoid. And so next time, if you try to go in between the basketball cage and the ping pong cage, you're going to know there's a pinch point where I'm going to get stuck, and that's probably not a good idea. And so you begin to learn how to deal with situations. You begin to learn how to handle things. You begin to grow up and really realize what uh, I need to do and what I don't need to do. The people perhaps I need to stay away from, the people I need to surround myself with. Instead of just praying that the situation changes all the time, the circumstances change, man, if we don't ever grow up and learn how to handle conflict, if we don't ever grow up and learn how to handle how to deal with offense, if we don't ever grow up and learn how to manage our money, if we don't ever grow up and learn how to talk to our spouse, if we don't ever grow up and learn how to discipline our children and engage them, if we don't ever learn how to be on time at work, if we don't ever grow up and learn how to get engaged and involved, and we just pray everybody else fixes our problem and everybody else has changed God is saying hey why don't you grow up Amen. Paul was writing this from prison and he was trying to stir these people to grow up because he's like I can't come and help you I would love to my heart hurts for you but I can't go and rescue you you're gonna have to figure this out yourself but I'm gonna pray that God will help you I'm gonna pray that God will help you not by changing the circumstance, but by changing you. Because if God can change you and help you to grow and be more mature, help you to grow in understanding, help you to grow and know what His will is, then when those challenges come, you'll have the endurance and the patience to be able to get through it. Amen, somebody. That's what Paul was talking about there. It's not about the circumstance changing. It's about you letting God change you so you don't lose hope when stuff comes your way. Verse 13 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So here he begins to talk about the power of God. So when he talks about God helping you and God doing his part, he's saying, listen, God has already transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So you should be living differently. You should be seeing things differently and you need to grow in that. He's saying, listen here. He has given you the redemption, the forgiveness of sins that you need to live a victorious life. 
He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood on his cross. And you, who were once alienated from and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you into his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from hope, from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Man, he's trying to show these people who they are in Christ for the purpose of being able to continue when they want to give up, when they want to run, the, run away, or when someone comes along with something that sounds better to their mind or to their ears, and it warms their heart and it makes them feel special by giving them secret knowledge, making them feel like they're elitists, making them feel like they're better than other people, like the Judaizers filled as they were full of pride because of all the things that they've accomplished and all the things that they've done. You see, this is the message that was trying to creep into the church, and here the Apostle Paul is trying to put Jesus at the forefront. He's saying, listen, don't forget, this is all about Jesus. Let me magnify Jesus and talk about how awesome Jesus is. Not how you have more secret knowledge and you're more special because you have this selfish gnosis knowledge about these secret angelic levels. He's trying to reiterate the preeminence and the awesomeness and the all-sufficiency of Jesus and the cross and say, listen, you guys don't deserve this. This is not something you've earned and it's not something you can earn like the Judaizers will tell you that you've got to go through A, B, and C, and D, and E, and F, and G before you will even be welcomed as a Christian. He's saying, no, it's all about Jesus, and it's all about faith in Him. Your hope comes from the gospel, is what Paul said. He said, I've been preaching this stuff. He said, I'm a minister of this stuff, and I get it because Paul lived it. Amen? You see, Paul prayed that these people would be empowered because he knew that they were going to need to stand on the hope of the gospel because understanding the gospel makes us realize how awesome Jesus is. Understanding the gospel makes me understand how amazing he is, and it drives me to a deeper place of worship. It drives me to a deeper place of understanding how my life is not my own, but it was bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. It drives me to a deeper place of worship because I become grateful, and I understand it's Jesus' victory that I get to share in, that he did it all, and that by grace we are saved. We have been recipients of His mercy and His grace. And listen, we need to know the difference between mercy and grace because we say those things often in church and we don't even realize that those are two different things. Mercy is you don't get what you deserve, but grace is unmerited favor, undeserved favor. Mercy says you messed up at work and you didn't get fired. That's what mercy says. You forgot to turn in your paperwork, Wazowski. And you didn't get fired. You messed up at work, you didn't get fired. That's how you get mercy. Grace says you messed up at work and you end up getting a promotion. Not because of you messed up, but because of the love that the person had for you. 
You get to, they didn't deserve that. You ever had maybe that conversation around the water cooler at work where something happens to someone else and it's always not you? Or it seems like it's always not you? Something happens where someone just gets a big bonus or someone gets a promotion. And you go, hey, they didn't deserve that. Well, grace is you getting what you didn't deserve and this unmerited favor piece that you didn't really even earn. Because guess what? When it comes to forgiveness, you didn't deserve that. When it comes to right standing with God, you didn't earn that. Wasn't something that you came up with or you were good enough to earn or deserve. It was something that was given to you freely when you were at your worst. He says, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to reconcile you in right relationship to God. You see, he gave you victory over the power of sin, death, and hell, and he's done it all. He is preeminent. No one is higher. No one is greater. The gospel impact on my life shows me that Jesus is everything. And it stirs up my heart to realize, wow, I did not earn this. I did not deserve this. It's all about Jesus. Wow, his grace gave me something that I really didn't deserve something that I did not earn. He showed me favor when I was at my worst. He showed me love when I was at my worst. As we reflect back on our own sinfulness, we go, wow, how could you love someone like me? And he did. And now he's taken you out of the darkness and he's put you into light and now he's put you into right standing with God and he's given you a new life. He's given you a new nature. And he said, listen, I want these to be my sons and my daughters I want them to receive my love. I want them to accept my love. I want them to be that new creation in Christ where all that old stuff has passed away and everything has become new. And it drives us to a place of worship. You see, the gospel impact on my life shows me Jesus is everything. Because we need to grow in our understanding of the gospel to deepen the reality of knowing Him. You know, there's some people that pray like they know Jesus. There's some people that worship like they know Jesus. Because there's a difference, folks, between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. And it's pretty easy to tell the difference a lot of times. When you can just hear someone pray or be with someone who really knows Jesus, then there's something different. And you're like, that person actually knows Jesus. And then there are people that they just know a lot about Jesus. They've got a lot of information. They know a lot of scripture. They've read a lot of books, and they sound really impressive. But there's not this conviction thing there. There's not this life in their eyes, and there's not this excitement in their tone. They just have a lot of knowledge, but you can tell there's just not relationship there. Kind of like when you look at your spouse, and you know your spouse says, you haven't told me you loved me all day. I love you. <laughs> it's different than when you go, I love you. My wife is here today. I love you. There's a difference in that and her saying, hey, you've been busy today. Yeah, and you told me you love me. You haven't kissed me. You haven't hugged me. Nothing. What's up with that? Oh, I love you. I got to get back to what I'm doing. There's a difference and she knows it. And there's a difference between you saying, I love you, Jesus, and I love you, Jesus. There's a difference in you reading the scripture because you feel like it's a, just a task that you're trying to mark off all of the list and you're going, I get to know more about my God. There's a difference in someone going, I guess we're going to church today, and we get to go and be with our other church family and worship our Creator. There's a difference between knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. Let's read the rest of this together. Verse 24, 
says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Here's Paul, this crazy joker. He's rejoicing in his suffering for who? For your sake. He said, you Colossians, I'm rejoicing in my suffering for your sake. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of excuse me to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for the ages and generations but is now revealed to his saints to them God chose to make known how great among the gentiles are the riches of his uh, of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory in him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I think that those last few verses in the first chapter of the book of Colossians should be in the heart of every pastor, every minister who preaches and teaches the gospel. That our desire is that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is our toil. This is us struggling with all the energy that we have been given by Christ as He works within us to help people to grow, teaching everyone with all wisdom, helping us to grow, helping us to mature, helping us to realize the impact of the gospel. He said, listen, I rejoice in my sufferings. He said, I'm filling up for myself the afflictions. In other words, I'm sharing in the afflictions of Christ. This is my way of sharing in the afflictions of Christ because I, I didn't have to go through that, but, but I'm so glad that I get to participate in this. I consider this me suffering with Christ. I consider this me growing in my, in, in my knowing Him by just getting a little taste of what my Lord and Savior felt. That said, I'm, I'm growing in it. He said, and I'm glad I'm able to do this for your sake. So don't feel sorry for me. He said, I'm praying for you. I'm doing this for you, and I'm teaching you, and I'm trying to help you because you need to grow and mature, because there's a lot of evil in this world, and there are a lot of people who want to come your way that want to try to knock you down or knock you out, and you need to be strong enough to be able to stand and know the difference between the truth and a lie. You need to know what a life impacted by the gospel looks like, because your life is being actively impacted by the gospel, and it's being impacted by the gospel more than once a week. Amen, somebody? You see, the gospel's impact on your life causes you to serve selflessly, for this I toil, Paul says. I have a reason. You see, Paul wanted them to understand that in every season of life that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. He didn't tell them Judaizers are bad. He didn't tell them Gnostics are bad. You don't see that in 1 Colossians. He didn't go, they're bad. Nope. He didn't tell them that. He didn't say, hope things get better for you guys praying for things to change. No, he said, instead, I'm going to remind you that Jesus is good and Jesus is worth serving. So when opposition comes, when persecution comes, when doubts come, when questions arise, when you have an opportunity to be selfish, when you're tempted to feel sorry for yourself, don't. Because Jesus is enough. Because Jesus is your hope. And you need to remind yourself of the gospel. And that's the first chapter of the book of Colossians. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Word of Grace. For more sermons or any other information, visit wogcc.com.